I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Coming up in the next hour, it's a band brought together by the magic of Saki. It's a woman who wasn't afraid to admit on the internet to wearing a skort in public. And it's an acclaimed character actor who spoke the lines that Bill Murray and the rest of us will never forget. Phil? Phil Connors? Hey, 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 now don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. It's, it's... With a letter to Santa from memoirist Paige Parker, comedy from Spicy News, actor and radio host Stephen Tobolowsky, and music from the Double Clicks and Luz Mendoza on this edition of Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hummeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole will sit in our audience and he will write a poem about all of the fabulous information that he has gleaned from the hour. And of course, we have music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Thanks, guys. So the uh, holidays are upon us. And uh, while some people are relishing every moment, I know that there are others who are just utterly miserable. Um, And it's largely due to what they believe is the scourge of the holiday season, Christmas music. And I get it. I totally do. It's old-fashioned. It can be totally cloying. And even though there's apparently a war on Christmas, there must be some kind of detente happening because it continues to be slathered all over everything everywhere. But it's really hard to hate Christmas music when it's what was on the record player during the best parts of your childhood. Then it doesn't matter if it's Ave Maria or Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, it's going to trigger a positive emotional response. Uh, As an example, I would like to offer up some of the songs that I grew up with and still love to this day, in some cases against all reason and judgment. Uh, This first one is John Denver. It gets me every time. 
Uh, that's from John Denver's Rocky Mountain Christmas. Uh, Please, Daddy, Don't Get Drunk This Christmas is the title. Now, the thing is, I loved that song, but that was because my father didn't, in fact, get drunk every Christmas. So if your father actually does, this record is not recommended for your family because you're just, you're setting yourself up for a really awkward holiday meal. Although I will say, with the whole family home, Christmas could be a great time to stage an intervention. Just think about it, you'll save money on plane fare later, and the snacks are always better around the holidays. It's just an idea. Uh, so this next one is from the Sinatra family wish you a Merry Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, I gave my loving dad a most lovely lavender tie. On the second day of Christmas, I gave my loving dad two silken scarves and a most lovely lavender tie. That is not a good song. That is not a good song. See, and I'm still nostalgic about it, and I still totally listen to it, but it's problematic because Frank is there, but the problem is so is his daughter Tina and his son Frank Jr. and Nancy. He is completely outnumbered by mediocrity on this record. Uh, So I can't necessarily recommend this one, but I do highly recommend the album cover. It's all four Sinatras dressed all in white against a white wall. It's, it's a white Christmas on, on so many levels, you guys. Um, and this next one, this next one is great. This is Nat King Cole. A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices For yonder breaks A new and glorious morn For So a lot of people love Nat King Cole singing the Christmas song, and and I do too, but this one is the one that just always got me. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And then there was some stuff about God, which is great. Um, But when I was a kid, I I just thought that this was about light and hope and that every year we get another chance to not screw things up. That was what I took from that song. Um, And this next one is Johnny Mathis. I'm dreaming tonight of a place I love Even more than I usually do And although I know it's a the rest. We know what happens, right? He'll be home for Christmas. Um, this, <laughs> this song feels universal to me. I mean, I know the lyrics aren't universal at all, um, although I feel like you could retrofit whatever religion you would like on this song. I'll be home for Hanukkah. You can count on me. Please have gelt and a new belt for Judah Maccabee. <laughs> I don't know why he needs a new belt. Um, the lyrics are rough, but what I'm saying is um, what, what I love about that song is all of that longing you hear in the beginning of it, and it just reminds me of that feeling that you get when things may not be going really well in your life, and you might have hypothetically gotten your car towed for too many parking tickets because you're 
hypothetical therapist is in a building with no parking. And maybe you're thinking that you're just not as great at being an adult as you always thought that you would be. And the only place you know you can feel like yourself again is home. And it's not necessarily because they love you, although they probably do. Um, it's because they give you the exact amount of grief you knew that you would get for your terrible sweater. And their bickering sometimes has just the right rhythm. It's like familial music. And even if you do something that you think no one will ever forgive you for, they just they sit you down at the kitchen table and they say, boy, did you screw that one up? Do you want a sandwich? That's a direct quote from my Aunt Sandy. She's, she's Sicilian, and she makes really good sandwiches. <laughs> so I totally get why you might hate it, and I agree that if I were to hear these songs for the first time today, they'd probably get the eye roll of doom. But as long as I'm alone in my car, so no one else is getting hurt, I'm sneaking on the All Christmas Station, because as much as it sounds like a department store on the day after Halloween, it also sounds like home. Our musical guest, Luz Mendoza, started the band Ila Bamba in 2008 after a particularly successful open mic at a sake bar. The band's sound, which they label art folk, combines the vocal harmonies of the traditional Latin music she grew up with, with modern influences like Devender Banhart. The band's latest album, Court the Storm, was produced by the Decemberist Chris Funk. Tonight, Luz joins us along with Ali Claris to play songs from the album, now available on the Tender Loving Empire label. Please welcome Luz Mendoza to Livewire. Thank you. Here's to my obsession of fever that survives in the pores of expressions only to confirm, only to confirm in my love. I've been looking out my window and bright what I see. To dance like words all over the paper Keeping it, keeping it inside Hidden inside my palms A place where I can rest my broken bones On top of the steam that comes from the Your hands, your hands are so small You know how to hold your baby
reaches out for his girl dead is creeping Before you swallow the infinite sea Now baby girl, just take a look and just read about another country Tucked in a corner, repeating the same old feeling. I'll share, even though I know that you're leaving. You can find more information about her music at ilabamba.com. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. I'm sure I forgot something. For the last time, I loaded the car last night. I double-checked everything. I know there's something, Pete. Darla, you planned Christmas within an inch of its life. What are you worried about? I'm worried that if we don't get to your brother's by four, we'll never make it to Joan's by six, and that means we'll have to call your mother and tell her we're going to be late, and she'll want to know why, and I can't lie to her, Pete. I can't. Not on Christmas. It's just, you make yourself crazy. Now, first up, your brother Ronnie's house. Okay, remember not to mention that we're going to see your sister at your Aunt Ruby's later. We're going to Aunt Ruby's? We're popping in for appetizers at quarter to five. Now, Ruby and Margo aren't speaking right now, so that means when we see her at Stephanie's later, don't mention anything having to do with Spain or exotic birds. Spain? You know how they are. Oh, I hope your father's ready. We told him 3.30. I'm here. Stop honking at me. I'm not some person who needs to be honked at. I was in Korea. We know, Bill. Merry Christmas. Hi, Dad. David, where the hell are you taking me? We're going to Ronnie's house, and then we'll drop you at Levon's. After we're done at Vince and Cindy's, we'll be back to get you, and then we'll go to Darnell's. Darnell? Why are we going to Darnell's? He's clear across town. Darnell has it out for me. He broke my walk, man. Now, I'll fix his caboose. Is anyone else going to be there? Um, Earl, Cleve, Patty, and Trevor. This is nuts. Hang on. Wait a minute, Pete. Why are you taking Route 7 at this time of day? Why are you against me? I like the dark meat. Uh, I want to drink the punch. But I won't wear it. Route 7 is faster to Denby. I won't wear it! We know, Bill. Pete, I almost forgot. When we see Susan, tell her to remind Carlton to pick up Uncle Stan by 9.45 and then meet us at Terry's around 10.30 with Aunt Linda's spare holiday teeth. <laughs> 
Okay, why on earth are we going to Terry's? Uh, Terry paid for our sun porch. He's expecting to see us. Uh, turn right on Briar Way. The sun porch was two houses ago, and I'm taking Drummond. Uh, please don't shout at me. I'm trying to prepare myself to eat eight dinners in six hours, and I'm just not ready. And shouting at me and taking Drummond instead of Briar Way? In Korea, if you shouted, a gang of old women would throw rocks at your face. <laughs> No, they wouldn't, Dad. Don't you tell me about Korea. I was in Korea. Pete, why are you letting that person over? We can't afford to let people in. Ah, you see that? They didn't even give you the wave. What kind of sick person doesn't give you the wave when you let them over? Uh, We had a guy in Korea who wouldn't wave at you. We fixed him, but good. We sold him to the Chinese. Oh, and don't ask Tina's mother about not being there because she's not comfortable with Joan's grandmother's new boyfriend. I hate grandmothers. Okay, that's it. That's the one. What? What are you doing? I can't do this, honey. It's too much. Let's just say to hell with family nonsense. Go home and have a nice, quiet Christmas. All the planning, all the Google Maps. Darla, think about it. One dinner, no traffic, no weird grandmother's boyfriends. And maybe later we can uh, trim the tree, if you catch my drift. Uh, I caught something in Korea once on a furlough. (laughs) Wasn't a drift, I can tell you that. (laughs) Uh, What are we going to do with your father? Let's just drop him off at Darnell's. Maybe he can get even for the Walkman. I'll see Darnell in hot hell. And in 15 minutes for the soup. That was Trisha Ferguson, Sean McGrath, and Andrew Harris. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that's really enjoying this eggnog, so please don't talk about what's in it. Yep, that ruined it. Thanks. Coming up, memoirist Paige Parker, actor and storyteller Stephen Tobolowsky, the Spicy News crew, and the Double Clicks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Paige Parker is a teacher and a writing coach who spent 10 years as an education and health journalist for The Oregonian and now writes articles for Salon like Scorts Killed My Sex Appeal and My Awesome C-Section. She blogs at takingfences.com and is working on a memoir. Tonight, she brings us a heartfelt letter to a certain someone at the North Pole. Please welcome Paige Parker to Livewire.
Dear Santa, it's been a while, hasn't it? Something like 27 years now that I think of it. I'd like to acknowledge an uncomfortable truth up front. That last letter where I photocopied the Barbie merchandise page from the JCPenney catalog and scrawled on it, you're fake in red crayon. <laughs> it wasn't my best work. I should have put more thought into it. My mother warned me you'd be disappointed. Is it too late to say I'm sorry? I was nine and probably a little too into myself. Thanks for not holding a grudge. I'm a mom now with two kids, the oldest, a nearly five-year-old boy named Parker, or as I call him, the Y guy. He's a relentless interrogator, my son. But you knew that. You see him when he's sleeping. <laughs> you know when he's awake. And sure, that's creepy. <laughs> but I'm going to go with it because my son has some questions that he's asked me to pass along. First, Parker would like to know if you own a car. He asked me, and I said, no, he has a sleigh. And he replied, that's it? <laughs> well, it flies, I said. How? The magical reindeer pull it. No, Mom, Parker said. They're not magical. The wind picks them up and carries them. What does Santa drive when he's not working? That one stumped me. It really did. I told him you look like the kind of guy who'd drive a vanigan. <laughs> but then I had to take the next 20 minutes to explain why guys with beards drive vanigans. It's probably poor form to hijack my kid's Christmas letter, but I have a question of my own, and I'm afraid I'll forget if I don't ask now. Why did a catalog from Chico's arrive in the mail the day after I turned 35? Is it because I'm starting to look like Mona from Who's the Boss? <laughs> it's been heavy on my mind, Santa, and I'd be much obliged if you could clear it up. Back to Parker. He wonders what type of baked good you would like us to leave out on December 24th. Can you tolerate gluten? We'd hate for you to bloat or break out in a rash. <laughs> I told Parker the rash is probably inevitable, what with the heavy fursuit, the frequent dismounts from the sleigh, and the temperature variations you face during your shift, going from the warmth and humidity of, say, Fiji, to the bitter cold of the Great Steppe, and all in the wink of an eye. But then he wanted to know where you'd get a rash if you were to get one and if you had a penis. <laughs> Since we're getting so personal, I'd like to piggyback off his question. <laughs> you and Mrs. Claus seem to have a solid marriage, <laughs> if I'm to believe the press. 
but there had to have been some stale years back when the elves were smaller. So how did you keep your marriage going? Back rubs? Nooners? Role play? And do you call it role play when you're Santa or something else? Forgive me, I've gotten us off track again. Parker has been conducting sort of a year in review, and at this time, he asks that you reflect on his exemplary behavior on the evening of August 13th, when he thanked his mother for making a healthy dinner and proceeded to bed without incident, and that you please disregard the morning of December 11th, when he awoke at 5 a.m. and screamed for waffles and Diego, then tried to convince his sister to lick the dog. As for me, well, I can't let this moment pass without mentioning, in my defense, that I'd consumed three margaritas the night of this year's supermoon, or I never would have stood on my back deck, lowered my britches, and screamed at the heavens, I'll show you a supermoon. <laughs> Point is, this year took an all-out 365, no, 366-day effort for our family, Santa. This boy of mine, he asks about eight questions a minute, and I don't mind telling you I often fail to find the right answers. I know that next year he won't need me to write this letter for him because he'll have learned to write in kindergarten, and that in five years' time, you'll open his wish list to find nothing more than a screenshot of an iPad with the words, if you even exist, scribbled below it. <laughs> Until then, Santa, may I say that I'm so grateful for all you do all the year through, when no one is looking. If you could track down a tree fort kit with woodland animals and woodland friends, I know Parker would be thrilled. I explained to him that Santa has limited time and a limited budget and only delivers to children, but Parker insisted I tack on a wish of my own just in case. Normally, I'd ask for bigger breasts. <laughs> but maybe we can get to that next year. This year, I wish for peace and health and happiness, but most of all, peace. So would it be too much to ask you to bring me a ban on assault weapons? I'm asking for my sake and Parker's too. Sincerely, Paige. Paige Parker. More of her writing can be found at takingfences.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and we know you have many radio variety shows to choose from, and your business is important to us. That's why you can find our broadcast on this fabulous station, as well as our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and our website at livewireradio.org. Uh, who's that guy from that movie? Uh, which one? The guy from Groundhog Day, the insurance salesman? Uh, that would be me, Stephen Tobolowsky. Crap, who's that guy? Uh, which one? The one who got eaten by the piranhas in Bird on a Wire. Mel Gibson? No, it wasn't Mel Gibson. It was the guy from Memento. Oh, Joe Pantoliano. No, it's me, Stephen Tobolowsky. Hello. I'm actor, author, and dreamweaver Stephen Tobolowsky. Let me save you some time. If you're wondering who that guy is from the movie, according to the law of Stephen Tobolowsky, there is an 83% chance it's me, Stephen Tobolowsky. 
So don't waste your time guessing it's J.K. Simmons or David Paymer or even Helen Hunt, because seriously, it's probably me, Stephen Tobolowsky. They hate Mississippi. They hate us because we present a shining example that they are powerless against us. That guy is so good. Who is that guy? Uh, that is Mississippi Burning, so that would be me, Stephen Tobolowsky. No, I don't think so. Doesn't sound right. No, I'm pretty sure it's me. No, it's like Ted Mazurowski or Stefan Toroblinski. No, or Stephen Tobolowsky. No, that's not it. Okay, stop talking. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, don't be fooled by the J.T. Walsh axiom or the Cromwell doctrine. Let the law of Stephen Tobolowsky work for you. Even if you're wrong, no one will correct you because it just sounds right, doesn't it? And remember, it also works for TV. Who's that guy from Justified or from Glee? There's an 83% chance it's Stephen Tobolowski. Even if you don't think you know Stephen Tobolowski, you know Stephen Tobolowski. He's one of film and television's most respected character actors, having appeared in over 200 movies and television shows. His films include Memento, Mississippi Burning, and he played Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. His television credits include Seinfeld, Deadwood, Californication, The Mindy Project, and many, many more. He continues to get work as a character actor, but more recently he has gained attention for his storytelling. In 2005, he starred in a documentary that was essentially a two-hour monologue called Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. And a couple of years ago, his friend David Chen from Slash Film wanted to preserve all of his stories, so they started a podcast called The Tobolowsky Files, which has now been picked up by Public Radio International. Stevens also turned these stories into a memoir called The Dangerous Animals Club. Here with a story that's not from that book, please welcome Stephen Tobolowsky. Thank you. Uh, what I like to do is tell true stories from my life. This is one of them, and I call it The Moth and the Window. In the mid-1970s, I came out to Los Angeles to become an actor. It only took me three years before I realized it was impossible. I couldn't get a job, I couldn't get an agent, I couldn't even work for free. I performed on one show where I had to pay the producer $100 to cast me. <laughs> it was not money well spent. Opening night, no one was in the audience. But the bright spot was I was able to meet other struggling actors, and one of them was someone named Tom Calloway, and he was friends with Pat Riley, the new coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers made it to the playoff that year, led by someone named Magic Johnson, and there was Kareem and James Worthy. It was showtime, and we had tickets on the 10th row. I was in heaven. My car was a dented Oldsmobile that was on its last legs. It had no heater, no windshield wipers. The front window was of the hand-crank variety, and it was permanently in the down position. Not completely down. Uh, there was about one inch of window sticking up from the bottom, but it was hardly protection from the elements. The only thing I had to keep me warm was the rock and roll on the radio. It was freezing that night on the way to the arena. 
I switched the radio from Shake It Up by the Cars to the game. It was about 15 minutes before the tip-off. I pulled behind a long line of cars headed into the parking area, and that's when I noticed I was not alone. There was a big moth in the car. It began fluttering around my face, and I swatted at it, trying to encourage it to fly out of the permanently open front window. But it only flew into the part of the window that was closed, on the bottom. (laughs) The bottom inch. And then it flew right back into my face. I spoke to the moth with quiet authority. I said, go on, go on, get, get out of here. Now, it was 10 minutes before tip-off, but the line of cars hadn't budged. I stuck my head out the window and yelled, let's go, come on. I honked once. I sat back in my seat. I was steaming. The moth fluttered around my head again. Again, I tried to knock it out of the window, and again, it kept banging against that bottom inch that was standing up, and he did it again and again and again, and I muttered, stupid, idiotic moth, what a moron. (laughs) On the radio, they started introducing the players. Now I was in a panic. There had to be some sort of problem up ahead. Maybe someone didn't have change. Maybe the parking lot was full. I started honking my horn and yelling, come on, come on, move it. The moth tried to fly up my nose. I yelled, look, moth, you have the entire window. It's completely open. Go or I will kill you. I've often talked tough to insects. The game started, I screamed. I finally got out of my car to see what the holdup was, and then I saw, to my horror, I had been waiting in a line of parked cars. (laughs) I had been honking and yelling at no one. Upon further examination, there wasn't even a gate up ahead of me. The entrance to the arena was only a product of my own wishful thinking. Inside the car, I saw the moth fly into the window once again, and then it hit me in that one moment. We were exactly the same. (laughs) The moth and me. He couldn't see the open window. I couldn't see that I was behind a line of parked cars. It was all a matter of perspective. Since then, I've had many walls thrown at me in life, hardships, setbacks. But because of my friend the moth, I learned that sometimes a wall is not a wall, but from a different angle, it could be a bridge. That's the way the world teaches us to see with new eyes. Stephen Tobolowsky. That was Stephen Tobolowsky. Welcome to Livewire, Stephen. Oh, it's so good to be here. So um, we'll get to the, the book and the storytelling a, a little bit later, but I wanted to talk about your career just a little bit. Uh, I know you started in theater, you went to graduate school for theater, and you, you've said that you imagined yourself being doing Shakespeare. How, when did that change for you? I guess when no one did Shakespeare anymore, ever. <laughs> I guess you do up here in Ashland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but in Los Angeles, no one did Shakespeare at all. I remember the only time I did Shakespeare, I was uh, auditioning for a Japanese commercial. And uh, it was all Japanese. I don't speak Japanese. 
Uh, he wrote out lines for me, we American sailor like the pretty girl, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> I found this an odd thing to say, and the director uh, said, you say anything you want, we dub Japanese over your face. <laughs> so I ended up saying... That's got to feel good as an yeah. actor. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, resolve itself into a Jew. And it was the only time in L.A. I did Shakespeare. <laughs> well, there's, um, there's a story uh, from your theater days that you tell in the book that is laugh-out-loud funny about a disastrous play where you actually had to emerge from a giant cassava melon. Um, yeah. It didn't go well. Whenever you do these plays, you never really rehearse them. And, and I had to jump out of the cassava melon, but the problem was they didn't have the cassava melon ready. I was to be mic, but they didn't have the person feeding me the mic cord. So on opening night, I'm dressed up like Uncle Sam. So I have the big top hat and the, the vest and the beard that goes around my ears and the pants. Everything's Velcroed on. And I jump out of the cassava melon, but the mic grappler did not feed me any microphone cord. So I ended up being garroted in midair. <laughs> I fall on the stage, which was raked at an angle toward the audience, so I start rolling unconscious toward the audience. I hear this <laughs> It's my Velcroed clothes coming off. <laughs> I stand up in my jockey shorts with my beard hanging down. Now a lot of you people in the audience, see, you're sitting in the dark and you think you're anonymous, but see, up here on stage, I see all of your faces because you're lit by the stage lights. And as, my, as I stood up in my stupor, in my beard and jockey shorts, I saw this, like... <laughs> With their mouths agape. Mouth agape. I had no idea what to say. I know, but fortunately, the show was much shorter that evening. <laughs> Was the one good thing. Right. But you, you really dealt with that situation well. And I, it, it seems like because you are, you're, you're so prolific, you work so often, these kinds of things are going to happen to you in your career. There's going to be some things that you work on that you're not as excited about. So how do you deal with that as an actor? It, it depends on if you're dealing with a television show that's terrible... Uh, that you're working on, you, you just, it's like the flu. It's going to be gone soon, and you'll be <laughs> on to the next. It's, it's, it's gone. If, right. if you're working on a play that's bad, that's a whole different situation, because in a play, you really are like a family with that cast, and you really do bond with the material, and you fight, and you fight, and you fight to make it work. Every night, every performance, no matter how how bad it is. So plays are different, and I guess there always has to be something bigger than you that you have to care about, and it is the love of the project and the love of what you're doing, and if you rise to that, you'll always find a way to kind of step over your humiliation. Well, one of the things that you, you've played a lot of bad guys, and one of the things I found fascinating was you talking about how you play bad guys. In fact, how you played this, this Ku Klux Klansman um, as a hero. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Uh, Alan Parker in Mississippi Burning, he said, how are, you hate this question when you go in a director and he says, so what are you going to do? You hate that question. And I said, I'm going to play him like Abraham Lincoln. Because... 
bad guys don't think of themselves as bad guys. You know, they think of themselves that they're actually doing something uh, that has some sort of benefit to some. I said he is an advocate for the white nation. You know, I'm going to play him, you know, not like like making darting glances right and left. I'm just going to play him like a straight, honest American hero and let the audience kind of make their own assessments. Yeah. Well, and that was a film that you made with Alan Parker, and he yes. actually kind of showed you the ropes. That was that A was little bit shocking. of filmmaking. I, I had one audition. I was just breaking up with my long-time girlfriend, Beth. We had been together for like 17 years. I was heartbroken. This was the, the playwright, Beth Henley. Beth Henley, who, who had won the Pulitzer for Crimes of the Heart. I was absolutely heartbroken. My agent called me up and said, you have an audition with Alan Parker, Mississippi Burning. I said, great, fine. I show up for the first audition, didn't even know I was auditioning. I was looking out at the golf course while I was talking, did the audition. Later I heard, oh, it went great. Uh, they called me back a second time. They called me back a third time. Now I started getting nervous, and I was sitting in the office, and I remember the, the secretary saying, you know, they really like you in there. Everybody is trying to be scary, but you seem to be scary naturally. <laughs> I then get the phone call for the fourth audition. So now I'm really knocking my knees. I, they're going to fly me out to Jackson, Mississippi, where my girlfriend Beth lived, where she, where she lived with her family. She, she had gone back to visit her parents, and I thought, oh, my God, what if I go back to Jackson, Mississippi, and I run into Beth at the Holiday Inn where I'm staying? You know, what, what's going to happen? I go in for my audition. It was in a dark hotel room. There was one light on the table, like interrogation or whatever. Alan Parker was sitting in the dark at the back. I sit in the light. His first thing was, so, I had dinner with your ex last night. <laughs> She's really very entertaining. I said, I, I know, she, she is. He said, why did you two break up? I said, we had a great disagreement as to what constituted a joke. He said, very good. <laughs> and then I went through the scene. I got back to the hotel room. Ten minutes later, I got the phone call that I got the part. And I think it's because Alan went out with Beth. <laughs> <laughs> he just felt like he had to give it to you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about storytelling. You, uh, if people watch, uh, it's a film called Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. It's, it really is. It's about a, an hour and a half long monologue. You have so many stories to tell. You have, this, you have 50 podcast episodes with stories in them. And a lot of people can tell stories, but they don't necessarily, they don't hit like your stories hit. What to you makes a story good? To me, the first thing that makes a story good is truth. I think true always trumps clever. And uh, there was a thing, I'm a big fan of Aristotle. And Aristotle is the guy who invented beginning, middle, and end. I mean, before Aristotle, if you look at the literature before Aristotle, it, it goes all over the place. But we have inherited beginning, middle, and end. And Aristotle has this thing that he calls technea, which we get the word technique from, which is interpreted a lot of different ways, but one idea of technea is that when you hear something that's true, there's a little connection that happens in your brain, and you go, it's true, and you have a little burst of pleasure that we 
have pleasure when we hear something true. So for me, when I tell stories like the stories in Dangerous Animals Club, every story in there is true, yeah. absolutely true. And there, a lot of them are so stupid that when you hear them, you know they have to be true because no one could make up anything like that because the technea goes like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to, to ask you, you uh, when you talk about acting, and mm -hmm. you, you say that people ask you um, for advice about, about acting, and uh, you've said that the two most important questions to ask the characters that you play are, what's my greatest hope and what is my greatest fear? So w what is your greatest hope and oh. your greatest fear? Oh. My greatest fear is that I will not keep reaching for the banner of trying to be truthful, either in my acting or in my writing, that I'll cop out and, and become cheesy. Uh, my, my greatest hope is to see my kids happy, uh, to see my wife fulfilled and happy, and uh, that I'll be able to keep writing because I think I love writing more than I like the acting, to tell you the truth. Really? Really. You've been acting and you studied acting. What, it, is, what is it about writing for you that's so much more satisfying? It's, I guess I'm more of a solitary person. When you write, it really, it is in your head all the time, 24-7. When you act, you have a day where it's done. It's finished. You go home, you know, they say, this project's done. But when you write... It keeps going in your head all the time, and you're able to keep changing and refining and making the story more point. It's, it's a beautiful art form. I love it. Well, uh, you've done it beautifully. Uh, the book is Dangerous An The Dangerous Animals Club. The author is Stephen Tobolowsky. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's you been so a pleasure. much, Courtney. Thank you. <laughs> Livewire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Markets, who remind you that Christmas is a time of giving and togetherness, but it's also the time when your whole crazy family shows up, eats everything in the house, and touches everything you own. Which is why Whole Foods carries prepared meals without any artificial flavors, colors, sweeteners, preservatives, or trans fats. So you can grab an easy, healthy dinner for your in-laws. They also carry eco-friendly cleaning supplies for after they touch everything and leave. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarkets.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our favorite nerdcore band, The Double Clicks. You've heard the Christmas stories about the drummer boy and reindeer. You've heard about old Santa and his elves. And his elves. If you listen close, I'll tell you a true tale of woe and cheer. It happened to me, friends, and it could happen to yourselves. It was a cold December, not so very long ago. Much like yours in a season filled with snow. From my basement office, I watched chaos turn to brawl and hoped a Christmas miracle could somehow save us all. Hello, team. This is your CEO, John. 
Now, I know that the economy was rough this year, but you've all done a spectacular job, and I wanted to take this opportunity to give you my sincere thanks. Happy holidays to you and your families. Reply all. Hi, everyone. This is Mary from Marketing, and I just wanted to reiterate John's thanks. Everyone really gave it their all this year. Merry Christmas. Reply all. This is Robin from Human Resources. Just wanted to remind you to keep your work-related emails religion-neutral this holiday season. Happy holidays is a preferable message. Reply all. Thanks for the reminder, Robin, but I'd really prefer to say Merry Christmas. Just ignore it if you're Jewish or whatever. Reply all. What do you mean by Jewish or whatever? Reply to all. Would you please stop hitting? Reply to all. Some of us have work to do this morning. Reply all. Stop complaining, Calvin. At least someone brought in potato pancakes last year for Hanukkah. When has anyone done anything for Kwanzaa? Reply all. How are we supposed to know what to make for Kwanzaa? Reply all. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to remind you that the guidelines for discussing religious and cultural differences are in the employee handbook in the chapter titled Silent Nights, Silent Days, Please don't talk about the holidays. Reply to all. Please cut out all the reply to all. I work down here in IT. This has nothing to do with me. If you want to send a message, just send it to one or two. The servers will slow down if these continue to accrue. Reply all. Uh, what to make for Kwanzaa? Some yam porridge would be nice, Calvin. You know where I got that? Wikipedia. Took 30 seconds. Reply all. Carl, the password you gave me to access the S drive for my laptop isn't working anymore. Can you reset it? Reply all. I had some Kwanzaa food once. It was delightful. Reply to all. For reals, you guys, this is killing me. There are 300 people on this list. Reply all. If you're confused about how to use the PDF version of the employee handbook, I can hand out some physical copies. Just let me know. Page 45. Reply all. Uh, Peter, I reset your password, but remember, it's case sensitive, okay? And all the O's in Portman Lover 74 are actually zeros. Reply all. I'll check it out, Robin. By the way, here's a great way to get into the quote, holiday spirit. It's a video of my daughter Savannah dressed as the baby Jesus on a fat pony in last year's Christmas pageant. Five minutes of fun. Reply all. Dang it, Mary! But that was the last message that was received that day. A miracle happened then that took all the complaints away. The company's servers could not handle so many replies. The many whiny emails brought about their own demise. And as the email systems whirred until their function ceased, the office filled with silence and my co-workers with peace. And we learned as we each 
hummed our private holiday songs The power to stop replying to all was in us all along The double clicks! Aubrey and Angela. You're listening to Livewire, the radio show that's not standing under the mistletoe waiting to be kissed. It's just that that's where the spinach dip is. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Luce Mendoza. Rekindle, we 
Mendoza. Well, we warned you at the beginning of the show. Uh, Scott Poole has been uh, doing the opposite of Laurel resting in our audience for the past hour. He's been writing. Uh, he's been keeping track of every, everything that we do. He's been writing it down, and now he is here to tell you everything that he's learned. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. <laughs> What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that if you can't feel the holiday spirit, you should try writing a holiday reply to all poem to the rest of your company, especially if it's the first poem you've ever written. Make sure you mention Kwanzaa and poodles. Make sure you steal a red sweater off a poodle to wear while you're being fired for writing the reply to all poem. And while you're being fired, make sure that you suggest that Groundhog's Day should be the end of the holiday season instead of New Year's. And don't forget to wear a lavender tie and two silken scarves, of course. This is the time when it's appropriate to give your boss a groundhog as a holiday present as if to elegantly make your point because nobody knows what the hell to do with a groundhog except keep sticking it in your front yard again and again until it pops out of your front lawn on February 2nd. If your boss won't accept it, then set it free in your neighbor's car before he heads to a Lakers game. And if you still don't feel the Christmas spirit after that, make your own tinsel by tearing a piece of foil lengthwise several thousand times in a row while you chew a habanero pepper, wear nothing but the tinsel, then wander the streets screaming Merry Christmas at the top of your lungs until a group of old women throws rocks at your face. You won't know what season it is, and you'll appreciate how warm jail is. Merry Christmas, everyone. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Paige Parker, Spicy News, Stephen Tobolowsky, The Double Clicks, and Luz Mendoza of E La Bamba. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Paul Brainerd. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, and performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Chelsea Kane, and The Double Clicks. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound and Eileen Hagen Accordion Studio. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. 
Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 